Good morning, Northbrook. I'm Melissa, and this is Rebecca. We will be doing the reading. Um, we will be reading Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. If you don't currently have a copy of the written word, we have some at the welcome table, and you're, you're welcome to take one. It's our gift to you. Thank you. Um, so here we go. Uh, Psalm 19, chapter 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. La legge del Signore è perfetta, essa ristora l'anima, la testimonianza del Signore è veritiera, rende saggio il semplice. I precetti del Signore sono giusti, rallegrano il cuore, il comandamento del Signore è limpido, illumina gli occhi. Il temore del Signore è puro, sussiste per sempre. I giudizi del Signore sono verità, tutti quanti sono giusti. <coughs> More to be desired are they than gold, even the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by then is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Sono più desiderabile del oro, anzi più di molto oro finissimo. Sono più dolci de mele, anzi di quello che stile da favi. Anche il tuo servo è da essi amastrato, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Chi conosce i suoi errori, purificami di quelle che mi sono occulti. Trattieni o notre il tuo servo dai peccati volontari e fa che non prendano il sopravvento su di me. Allora sarò integro e puro da grandi tra trasgressioni. Siano gradite le parole della mia bocca e la meditazione del mio cuore in tua presenza. O Signore, mia rocca e mio redentore. Questa è la parola del Signore. The word of the Lord. It's always a joy to gather with you. Um, again, just a reminder, you know, one of the reasons we do that is we want to be people, even as Mark prayed, uh, people that are thinking outside of ourselves. So even as we gather here on Sundays, uh, we read the scriptures in a different language just to remind ourselves that we are not the only people, that there are lots of people, lots of people that know and love Jesus uh, and lots of places and people that need to hear about this Jesus. And so we want to be reminded about that. And Mark, I was just so thankful for your prayer, brother. I, uh, there are certain moments in my life where I'm just like, something's going on and I'm like, man, I'm just thankful to be a Christian. Uh, and there was just the way you prayed for us in that way made me thankful for who God is, uh, thankful for what he's doing in the world, but also just thankful for like, man, uh, you should be encouraged by the church that you're a part of uh, in the sense of there is just God has, and not because of the preacher, <laughs> uh, y'all know that probably, uh, but because of uh, God has just brought uh, godly 
uh, awesome, encouraging, loving people that are giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. And man, what a joy to be a part of that uh, and, and see what my, God might do. That's what, like, even my hope as I think about Northbrook, like the, the godliness that God has stored up here. We're not perfect. We got all kinds of struggles, all of that. But the godliness that he has stored up here that he would unleash for his sake in the world. Uh, may, may it be uh, in our midst. Um, so what we're doing, uh, what we've been doing over the last many weeks is uh, going through this series called Rooted. So we're just thinking about kind of the foundational truths and practices of the Christian faith. And, and that if, if as Northbrook Church, is, if we, uh, a people of God, just knew a few things and just knew and understood and practiced a few things, uh, what should those things be? And so that's what we've been doing throughout the series. Talked about uh, who God is and the Trinity. Talked about the gospel. Talked about the church. Talked about prayer. And now we're talking about the Bible. And the Bible is one of those things that's kind of a foundational truth and practice. Uh, it's a foundational doctrine of the Bible of who God is and how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. But there's also a practice uh, to the Bible in uh, the Christian life that we gather to hear God's word, that we actually sing God's word, that we pray God's word, that we read God's word, that we uh, have practices uh, and disciplines in our life that are around uh, the scriptures. I actually, I was thinking about the Bible, I remember this was many years ago, I got to know a, a friend of Ginger's, uh, friend of Ginger's wife from, Ginger worked at Caprock Elementary. We went to things that happened, you know, with people at work, met one of those husbands, and uh, I didn't know how to get there, Whew. Uh, but, uh, and I was, me and this husband, he just kind of connected, and he was a Catholic, and so we would talk about our faith a bit, and one of the things, in his humility, he would say, you know, one of the things I, I think of the difference between Protestants and Catholics, he's like, if I think if I asked 10 Catholics if they've ever read the whole Bible, he thinks most of them would say no. But if he asked Protestants, you know, 10 Protestants, if they'd read the Bible, he would think most of them would say yes, and maybe even several times through. And so in his humility, I don't know if that's true. I haven't done my research there. But I actually thought, if I'm honest, he was a little optimistic uh, about uh, most Protestants having read the Bible entirely through. I'm not going to get you to raise your hand or anything like that. Don't worry. Uh, secret's safe here. The Lord knows. Uh, but... Um, uh, <laughs> But I, I, I'm not sure that we, you know, should be that optimistic. There's a, a recent study, I think it was done by Lifeway and Ligonier Connected. I'm not sure. I think that's, that's correct. Uh, it's called the State of Theology. And, and listen to just a few of these stats. And this is, these are, this is asked to Protestants, in particular in evangelicals, so, not, so people that believe that Jesus, uh, um, you know, rose from the grave, believe the Bible or profess to believe those things, go to church um, a decent amount of time. And here's some of the beliefs that, that they have that uh, should give us pause about our understanding of the scriptures. First one, despite the clear teaching of the scripture, I'm just getting this from the website, uh, the state of theology. Despite the clear teaching of scripture, this year's survey reveals that approximately half of evangelicals believe that God learns and adapts to various situations meaning that they believe that God does change. The Bible is very clear that God does never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another one, the fact that almost two-thirds of evangelicals believe that humans are born in a state of innocence reveals that the biblical teaching of original sin is not embraced by most evangelicals. God's word, however, makes clear that all humans are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, 
This truth is foundational for an accurate understanding of the gospel and of our absolute need for the grace of God in salvation. Last one, and this kind of hits exactly what we're going to be talking about today. This is the clearest and most consistent trend revealed by the State of Theology Survey since it began in 2014. So you see the different years they did this. So this is the statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. So in 2014, 41% agree with that, and you see the increase along the way to 2022, where 53% agree with that statement. So from 2014 to 2022, according to their research, there's a 12% increase in Christians not believing that the Bible is true. That's concerning. So with all that in mind, we, we have two questions around the scriptures today. Is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is true? It's question number one. Is it reasonable for us Christians to believe that the Bible is true? And then two, obviously, if I do believe the Bible, what role does it have in my life? So is it reasonable to believe the Bible is true and what role does it have in my life? And there's really going to be two points that, uh, that I'll have for today that kind of answer those questions in that order. Um, and it's simply that the Bible is true and that the Bible is beautiful. That the Bible is true and that the Bible is beautiful. Admittedly, I'm going to be brief about a lot here. So uh, I would more than love if you have more questions uh, about any of these things to follow up with you and talk more about any of these things. So let's consider, and we'll take the most time on this one. Uh, I, I, I do wonder if this one, I, I, I don't think it will be, um, but this, this part might be a little academic, a little heady, a little like a lecture. I hope not, but it might be that way. Uh, I learned from a book, uh, I learned from a handful of books by academic people, so that's why I'm saying that. Uh, Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger was really helpful and be a, shape a lot of what I say here. Some of y'all probably fell asleep while I said the name of that book. Uh, so if you did, then this might be a little boring for you. But, um, but I think it'll be helpful for us to, like we're talking about the foundations of our faith. And so the foundations of the scriptures are, are a good thing to kind of peel back the curtain, understand uh, how we got uh, where we are. Peter Williams, another New Testament scholar, he starts off his book, Can We Trust the Gospels, uh, with the idea of faith. And the idea that faith comes from this word, the Latin word, fides, which uh, is really more closely associated with the word trust. And you only hear a lot of people in the Christian faith talk about that, how faith simply means trust, which I think is sometimes really helpful in the sense of when I say, do you have faith in the Bible or even talk about faith? Sometimes the word faith is just filled with a lot of ambiguity and what are we even meaning when we say that word? Uh, it's a great word, obviously, but I think trust is a little more straightforward. We, we spend a lot of time trusting. You're trusting the chairs you're sitting in right now. I'm vaguely trusting the stage I'm standing on right now. Uh, you, you know, we have tr- we trust the cars we drive in. We trust the lives of our families in the cars uh, we drive in. We, we know what it's like to gain trust and have trust. We know what it's like to lose trust. So we're, we're used to trusting, and trusting is a little uh, more straightforward. And so, again, I, I think it's good to ask the question, is it reasonable to trust the Bible? And, and I use the word reasonable pretty purposefully. I think it's helpful and accurate and kind of a a freeing term because what some of us look for and what some of us want is just this airtight case for our beliefs, some some kind of proof that refutes all other proof. 
And, and I get that desire, and there's lots of good conversations to have uh, among those lines, but I think a better question to ask as Christians, is it reasonable to believe that the Bible I have today is what God meant it to be? Is that a reasonable thing uh, to believe? And again, Michael Krugler, in his book, he, he kind of interacts with a lot of modern biblical criticism, and, and he puts kind of this, puts forward these four reasons that we can believe uh, the Bible uh, that we have today. And, and I'll go through these, uh, but the four are just one, that the books were actually written, that we actually have books to even consider. It's kind of simple and straightforward, but you got to start with what you actually have. Um, two, he says that they possess divine qualities. Three, that they have been received by the church throughout the millennia. And then four, that they are connected to an apostle. So the first one, that the books were actually written. This is what he calls providential exposure. He says this, is now clear that we are only dealing with and can only deal with the books we have available to us. And in this regard, we trust in the providence of God that the books available to us are the ones he intended. Think of Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. So God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And in his pleasure, he exposes the church to the books that we have and keeps others from the church at large. It seems likely that potentially Paul actually wrote another letter to the Corinthians. There's different views about that, but he potentially wrote another letter to the Corinthians that the, the letters in Corinthians refer to. Uh, but we can believe because of God's providence, because of his power, that he, he kept that letter from the church, that the church didn't need that letter, that that letter was a, a good letter for that church in that moment at that time, but was not a letter that God wanted to preserve for the church throughout the ages. Like even when we just think about what God made available to the church and what he didn't make available, we can trust that God had providential plans in that. And so if the, the first step is having the books and, and trusting we don't have the books that we don't need, uh, simple question, how do we discern that what we have, again, is in fact from God? And the reality is a divine God inspiring the authors to, re- to write a divine book will within itself appear to be divine. Jesus says it simply this way, my sheep hear my voice. That's how we can know that this is of the Lord. Jesus is saying that those that are his can discern his voice when his word is spoken. 1 Corinthians 2 says it this way. In verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So one way we know that the Spirit inspired these words is that the Spirit helps us to believe that God, in fact, inspired these words. Listen to Kruger again. Put simply, canonical, so canon, that's just another way of talking about the New Testament, uh, the Scriptures, the, the Bible that we have, the books we have. So that's what that means. Put simply, the canonical books are received by those who have the Holy Spirit in them. 
When people's eyes are open, they are struck by the divine qualities of Scripture, its beauty, harmony, efficacy, and recognize and embrace Scripture for what it is, the Word of God. They realize the voice of Scripture is the voice of the shepherd. The Holy Spirit helps us to see God in these words. The the one that breathed these words into existence through the authors of the different books is the same Spirit that enlightens our hearts and minds to see God in these words. When we go to the Scriptures and read them, it's like we go to the Scriptures with the author. It's like sitting down to read the Lord of the Rings with Tolkien, which maybe we'll get to do in heaven. Who knows? Um, But it's like going to the, the book with the author. This is what the Spirit does. This is the power we have within us as we approach the Scriptures. And because we believe God has inspired this book and given us all that we need to know for life and godliness, that's actually why we gather around. This is what we're doing here on Sunday. It's why we gather to sing to this God, to, to sing uh, songs that are based on these scriptures, to, to open this book, to, to preach from the book, to read this book, to hear. That's why we, as a people, gather around because we believe that everything we need to know about life and death and everything in between that these are the very oracles of God that reveal the mystery of what, he's dis- that what he wants the, the whole earth to know. And so whether it's uh, on Sunday and in this moment, whether it's on Tuesday at a Bible study, whether it's in a community group, whether it's at a coffee shop, when we open this book and gather around what it says, we are doing a holy thing as God's people. When we open this book and try to have a conversation with someone that doesn't believe in this book, we're trying to communicate the very things of God because God has communicated them to us this is what happens as a group of people we have this individual response to God through his word so the spirit opens our eyes we read these words and we see and believe that they're the true words of God we have that individual response for sure but this word was written to a people to a covenant community to the people of God to the covenant community throughout the old testament and obviously in the new testament and it's to empower us to do life together and that's actually one of the reasons we can even again believe that this is the word of God because it empowers us to do that very thing to live life together like when has it ever failed us when is it ever when we go back and, and, and are encouraged by and corrected by and retrained and reoriented around what the scriptures call us to when does that fail us No, what fails us is the many times we go against what the very scriptures tell us to and call us to as a people, as a community, as friends, as husbands and wives and parents. Uh, But when we come back, when we confess and we and we and we turn our eyes to our shepherd and and observe all that he has commanded us to do, we we will never be failed, friends. This is this is what the word of God empowers us to do. Uh, Again, this is one of the ways we know that it is true. Uh, but I think it's also important to realize that the community of believers, because we receive it, because we affirm it together, the community of believers does not have authority over the Bible. But the Bible prese- possesses the authority from God, and the community receives and validates that authority. I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Uh, 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 Bill Mounts, uh, another New Testament scholar, he quotes J.I. Packer when he says this, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity. Newton did not create gravity, but recognized it. So the church doesn't determine what is God's word, but receives God's word. But you might ask, what about the reality that the church has disagreed over the Bible? 
uh, when there's been different confusions and different questions about the Bible. I love, uh, again, Kruger's analogy. I think it's so helpful in talking about this question. He says, in many ways, the fact that the corporate church as a whole would naturally recognize the canonical books is an analogous to the way justification naturally leads to good works. Talking about being saved, uh, being saved in the gospel, believing in the gospel naturally needs, leads to good works in our life. Just because we believe that justification inevitably produces good works in an individual, sorry, in an and, mm, y'all good? Okay. In an individual does not mean Christians live a perfect life. You can't imagine someone objecting to the relationship between justification and good works on the grounds that they know many Christians who commit heinous sins. However, the belief that good works follow justification does not rule out such sins or even periods of backsliding, but it is merely a claim that through the work of the Spirit, the overall collective direction of one's life is one that bears fruit. Likewise, the biblical teaching that Christ's sheep hear his voice does not require perfect, perfect reception by the church, with no periods of disagreement or confusion, but simply a church that, by the work of the Holy Spirit, will co- collectively and corporately respond. So again, trying to uh, help us understand that, that the church received God's word, that the Bible has the authority, that if you start to do anything with the Bible, that something outside of it confirms its authority, then what just happened? Well, that thing now has ultimate authority. The Bible is the thing that has ultimate uh, authority. So these other things, the, the fact that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to its truth, the fact that it's been received throughout the church in millennia, these are helpful things to help us understand the Bible's authority, but they don't, they're not what is authoritative, if that makes sense. But the last one, uh, the last connection that helps us understand uh, what, uh, that this is the, the Bible that God meant us to have is that the books of the New Testament are connected to the apostles. Again, so the books of the Bible became the books of the Bible because they were objective divine qualities in these books that the Holy Spirit helps us receive them as from God individually and as this covenant community. And then lastly, regards to the Bible being true, God revealed them to specific people in a specific point in time in the, around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And these are the apostles. Kruger, I think for the last time, um, he says... The apostles are the link between the redemptive events themselves and the subsequent announcements of those events. Not only did the apostles themselves write many of these New Testament documents, but in a broader sense, they presided over the transmission of the apostolic deposit and labored to make sure that that message of Christ was firmly and accurately preserved for future generations through the help of the Holy Spirit. And you can see that in those scriptures he noted. So the apostles were given the task of proclaiming what they were a witness to and helping the church apply this to their lives. So we obviously know that not every book of the Bible um, was written by an apostle, but if it wasn't written, it was written by someone that was closely connected to an apostle. I love Jesus' words in John 16. It kind of undergirds what he was encouraging the apostles to do. John 16, 12 through 15. Speaking to the apostles, he says... I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what the biblical authors did. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, they glorified Jesus by writing down what was revealed to them. And so there are definitely other reasons you can trust the Bible as valid. But these are the reasons that the Bible tells you you should trust it as valid. We can talk about historic support more. We can talk about eyewitness accounts. We can talk about all the documentation that uh, shows the validity of the Bible. We can talk about science in the Bible. And these are all good conversations to have. But as Christians, we are free to use the Bible as the authority to understand the Bible. And we are actually in sin when we are standing over the Bible in our own authority. And we should embrace and accept that freedom. God ordained these books to be written. He breathed his divine purpose through the authors, and God's people have been gathered around this book for thousands of years. And I think even if you are here today and you do not believe the Bible, here's the reality about every person. The reality is you do believe someone's word to make sense of your life. Like you are relying on someone's word to make sense of life and death and eternity and what matters in life. No one escapes that. The atheist believes in someone's word. The scientist believes in someone's word. Not that Christians can't be scientists. I'm not getting into that. Uh, But the Buddhist, the Muslim, the the person that just read a self-help book is relying on someone's word to make sense of life. So the obvious question is, are you relying on the right one? Are you relying on the right words? Are they the words that you've conjured up because you've lived these few moments in time? Are they words that have been recorded for thousands of years? I mean, even if you just think about the difference in those two, just objectively, one obviously seems more prideful than the other. Now, again, I'm in favor of the 2,000-year road, uh, and so I acknowledge that. I acknowledge my bias there. But just the idea of, oh, I can believe something that I kind of just thought of in this moment compared to what people have uh, submitted their lives to for, for thousands of years. But the reality is everybody is relying on some word. Obviously, are you choosing the right one? So the Bible is true, and it is beautiful. Look at Luke 24, 25 through 27, probably some of the most famous words about the purpose of the Bible. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus with some disciples. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones. I love that. <laughs> he was walking with Jesus. You're foolish. Um, we need to hear that from Jesus. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The reality is Jesus is the pinnacle of the Bible. Jesus is what makes the Bible beautiful. Like without Jesus... The Bible isn't beautiful. Now, you don't have a Bible without Jesus, but just saying. We we can often look and approach, and what we do is we can go to the Bible, not looking for Jesus, and then we use it to prop up our own whatever. And even as I say Jesus makes the Bible beautiful, this isn't even exalting one person of the Trinity, like the Father, something like, oh, what about the Father? What about the, the Spirit? Well, the Father and the Spirit work together to show us that the Bible is all about Jesus. 
So when we say Jesus makes the Bible beautiful, we're doing what the Father wants us to do and what the Spirit is encouraging us to do is to treasure Christ uh, in these scriptures. When we read the Bible, we are wringing them out for every ounce of Christ we can get. That's why we should go to the scriptures. It's just to, to squeeze them for Christ, to, to, see him, his, to see him come through every nook and cranny of the scriptures. And again, when we go to the scriptures for some other, other reason, again, we're, we're often just, you know, I want to be more comfortable. I want to be a better this. I want to be a, a better that. And obviously the scriptures have those, have those helps, but they're all connected to Christ. And, and when we detach them from Christ, those are what we all know to be as they become those idols in our life. That we want to be better at this or we want to be good at that. We can use the scriptures when we detach them from Christ to prop up our own little idols. But but we, we go to the scriptures to respond to who Jesus is. This is what we should be doing. When our life is not a response to Jesus, again, we, we start to look to the Bible in all kinds of unhealthy ways. But a proper way to read the Bible is to be captured by the beauty of Jesus and give him all of our lives. Psalm 19 really exposes how foolish and slow of heart we are. I mean, just hear the psalmist love for God's word, for, for God's revelation, for God's scriptures, for God's law. For, like when you hear the psalmist love, I think two things should probably happen in a healthy way. You should be stirred, your affection should be stirred, and you should be convicted. Because how, how far do we fall from this view that the psalmist has here? And he wasn't perfect. Psalm 19, in just verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. When was the last time your soul had been revived by God's word? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Again, we need to hear Jesus call us fools so that we can go to God's word and be made wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It will never end. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. And then listen to verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I mean, that's a revealing text. I mean, even if we think maybe, you know, I think about when we talk about, you know, sacrificing our lives for a wife, you know, we, or, or someone you, you love. Like a lot of us would take a bullet for someone. But what about sacrificing daily for your friend, for your spouse, for your kids? I think it's a lot harder than taking a bullet. And if we were to think about the scriptures in this way, if someone were to offer you a, a trillion dollars, but the Bible would have to be wiped from your memory and wiped from the world in every way and never to be known again. Now, you may have enough courage to be like, okay, I shouldn't do that. That's bad. Um, but what about the courage to daily treat the Bible as if it's sweeter than much fine gold? Like that daily sacrifice, that daily desire. That daily longing, verse 10, is exposing uh, in that way. And obviously, this is why, how we're warned and keeping them. There is great reward. Which one of us can discern his heirs? This is, what, this is what our world is right now. A bunch of people discerning their own heirs. 
And the scriptures say, no, who can do that? The psalmist wants to be declared innocent from hidden faults. He knows he has sin in his life that he's even unaware of, and he needs pardon. But then he also knows he has sin in his life that he likes to run towards. Keep me back, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. When we dwell on the word, we get verse 14, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's how, how do we know that that's happening in our life? When we're meditating and even um, pouring God's word back to him, connected to Christ. When we're seeing God's word for all it's meant to be and all it's meant to reveal to us about who Jesus is, that's when we know that our words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts are acceptable. Um, and I think when I, um, just a little aside for, for us parents, Maybe we come to Bible-believing churches. Maybe we'd answer all those theological questions earlier uh, correctly. Maybe we even preach the Bible. But if we show no love of the Scriptures in our home, our kids will notice and are influenced much more by our actions than our words. Uh, parents, I wonder, just maybe too much, but like even if you were to ask your kid, hey, do you think I love the Bible? What does my life with the Bible look like to you? Kids like to tell us the truth, especially if they're younger. You older ones, they're probably going to maybe polish it up a little bit. Uh, but if you've got a younger kid that can articulate those kind of things, that would be a helpful question. And so I'm going to close with uh, a picture of how the Spirit has awakened students at Asbury College. And I'm doing this because it's around uh, the Scriptures. And I thought about being super practical uh, today but then I chose not to be, so you're welcome. I don't know. Uh, and so what I hope is even by this picture is that we will desire what the Spirit has done here in our midst, that we would pray towards that end, that we would seek God towards that end, and that He would do this kind of work. So let me, let me close with this. This is an article uh, written on the Gospel Coalition, I think just a couple days ago, um, and it's by someone that spent several weeks there and he just kind of provides a picture of what that looked like. He said, all you want to do is worship. Individualism fades as you find you don't have to pretend anymore. You're not alone. Uncaged by your friend's love, you become vulnerable and confess things you have never thought you could. James 5.16 Soon anxiety melts as you and your friends, uh, friends challenge. No, invite each other daily to attend to Jesus of Nazareth. Nightlong prayers, days of spontaneous worship, and tears of intercession don't seem foreign. They feel surprisingly natural. Your appetite for everything entertaining is spoiled. And you walk into a study room to find a friend looking up at you guilty. This is terrible, she says. What? You say, I have so much to do, but I can't stop reading my Bible. And you laugh because you came in itching to finish reading Exodus 27 through 30. Since when did you last want to read Exodus 27 through 30? But the lover of your soul has made himself known. He stepped into your warp speed haze and took your hand. 
You're mesmerized by his words. You knew he was better, but you never gave him the time or attention to experience that knowing. Let's pray. Spirit, I confess that as I dwell on that story, as I consider Psalm 19, um, I feel um, in so many ways inadequate to, to preach this sermon. And so, Spirit, there's this beautiful work that you do that helps us stop making excuses, that helps us lay down our lives that enraptures us with a love for Christ and a love for your word that doesn't feel forced but is genuine. But even in that, you use our, our decisions and the things we decide to do and the things we lay down and the things we pursue and the, the disciplines that we have in our life. Those things aren't absent. We don't just wait on this enraptured feeling, but we pursue and desire and ask for you to uh, ignite the flame in our hearts to that we would be this kind of people that you would do this kind of work in our midst forgive us for not praying about it enough for not seeking you in this way for not inviting people in to not being so enraptured by your gospel that we long for all to know your gospel spirit we have so much uh, to confess And, and so would you lead us in that even now even as we uh, look to, to sing and praise, would even those, those um, words of praise, as in whatever way they need to be, be words of confession, be words of desire and longing that you would do this work all the more in our lives. For the glory of Christ's sake, we pray in his name. Amen.